One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you ever thought about writing a historical novel? Perhaps you fancy setting it in ancient Rome. But how would you start researching, for example, what the different classes of Roman would be wearing or eating or talking about at different times in Rome's history? A Writer's Guide to Ancient Rome is a new book that will help you get your facts straight, unlike this example it highlights from the film Gladiator. It's a dramatic moment in Gladiator, when the vengeful gladiator reveals his true identity to his nemesis, the Emperor Commodus, Maximus Decimus Meridius. I'd like to think the Emperor's stricken response was less concerned that his old man's factotum Maximus had escaped assassination and was now before him seeking vengeance, and more distaste about the strange construction of the gladiator's nomenclature. In this edition of Historical Fiction, History Hits' Tristan Hughes has been talking to Dr. Carey Fleiner, author of A Writer's Guide to Ancient Rome, to find out more about the resources out there to help you get your Roman history right. This is historical fiction. Carrie Fleiner, what's it all about and why did you decide you wanted to write this guide for fictional writers, you know, to create their own Rome? The prosaic answer to that is I happen to be at a conference where you get book publishers rooms and people are advertising calls for papers, calls for chapters, are you interested in this or that? And it was a medieval conference where they were putting together a book, A Writer's Guide to Medieval History. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun, actually, but I don't really do medieval history anymore. So I talked my way into doing ancient Rome. So I must have been very persuasive. And they agreed um, to have me do it. So it was meant originally to be part of a big series. So hopefully there will be more to come. And because it's such a big period, you know, when you're talking Mm -hmm. about stuff like what it is to be Roman and parts of Roman culture, Roman games and baths and stuff like that, is it important for a writer who wants to create their own Rome to know like, what period they're talking about? One of the reasons I was interested in this is not just for writers, it's for people who want to do world-building games or if somebody wants to do a film or, or what have you. I guess it comes from a lifetime of watching films and going, oh, come on, come on. I mean, one of the big jokes that, that I've always made to my students is, if you turn the mistakes in Gladiator into a drinking game, you'll be dead before Marcus Aurelius is because of the mistakes. But that's absolutely fine. I mean, one of the things I say in the book is, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But in answer to your question about finding your time period, I think it's essential because if you decide, yeah, I want to have something that has a lot of historical veracity to it, you set it in the Republic, and you've got your characters meeting at the Colosseum. Maybe that's what you want to do on a whim, but immediately your audience is going to say, oh, that's not right. It's like, how many films have we seen where the protagonists have a flat that overlooks every important landmark in that city? In real life, you know that's not possible. This happens in Roman films all the time. So the camera will go past buildings that are not meant to be in that time period. So I'm hoping that 
if someone has a little sift through this book, they're going to realize that initially looking at ancient Rome might be a daunting task. But if you look at the different periods, almost compartmentalize them, you can see this development over time moving from the Republic through to the Empire, through to the later period. So even though I focus on about 400 years, which tend to be the most popular time period that you see in films and, and books and games and that. There are antecedents that are in there saying, well, this goes back to the monarchical period. And there's looking ahead as well. But I think it's important, depending on the story that you want to tell, that you've done your homework. So do your homework first, and then what you want to do with your characters, if you want to make it silly and whimsical, or if you want to make it absolutely accurate. You need to do your homework first for it to be effective. One of the things which struck me right, like right at the start was this idea, once again, you know, of Romanness. The whole idea of this concept of Romanness, because it changes all the time, and obviously the idea which has come down to us today, and maybe influenced by Shakespeare, but also, mm. of course, Hollywood and stuff like that, how much difference was there between like, a symposia, if you're writing about a patrician and a symposia, or if you're deciding to talk about the plebs, uh, the back streets of Rome. Ooh, right there, if you were one of my students, I would have gotten you. It's interesting that what people's uh, general knowledge is going to be about Rome. They assume plebiscites, plebeian is poor, and the plebeians could actually be quite wealthy. So you could have plebeians at your symposia. Ah, so, so that's one of those things, because you, once again, it's that kind of Hollywood vibe or the TV vibe that you exactly. see, you know, I Claudius or whoever, you know, all those mm -hmm. people, you know lavish thing with their togas lying down on, on the couch. Exactly, it's a signpost. If you're staging a Roman spectacle, it's almost like there's a tick box. So when, whenever you watch your, your Roman films or, or television shows, are these particular elements there? So there has to be an orgy, for example, and there has to be a, either gladiators or there has to be chariot racing. Mm. How do people know they're in ancient Rome? So what you're asking is actually two different questions. How did the Romans decide, identify themselves? And then 2,000 years later, how do we decide what is a Roman? What are the signposts that we look for? And I think this is one of the things my students wrestle with is, would the answers be the same? So if we sit down and say, well, this has to be what the Romans were. They all had these orgies. They all had these lavish dinner parties. They all sat around. They went to the Colosseum every night. A Roman might come back and say, well, no, that's what this type of person does. And that's what that type of person does. There are studies on how we put so much of our own baggage. It's, it's called classical reception. So how we interpret what we see from the sources. Um, in what's going to define a Roman and what doesn't. The Romans themselves, they're really snobby. So they're very status conscious. And there's this sense of us versus them that develops the first time they encounter, in a big way, another culture. And that happens with us as well. You know, you go along in your little group and you, you don't think about, you know, are we this particular group? What makes us this particular group? Until you encounter outsiders. And this is what happens with the Romans. So for the first 400 years from the foundation of the city down to not so much the Punic Wars, but when they're fighting the wars in the Greek world in the late third century. They're busy farming, they're busy fighting, they're busy with their families. Romans are nothing but fighting and, and taking over these little city-states near them and villages near them. But when they encounter the Greeks for the first time, some of the soldiers, some of the commanders start bringing this stuff home. Ooh, the Greeks have theater. Ooh, the Greeks have philosophy. Ooh, look at this nice thing. All these slaves that are being brought back into the Roman world that have been captured in war, they have talents that the Romans haven't had time for. All of a sudden, you have people saying, wait a minute, you're bringing all this stuff back into Rome wholesale, like magpies. Is that really Roman? Is that distracting us from what Romans are? You know, Romans are supposed to be about their families, supposed to be about their farms, not reciting poetry. What's going on here? So. The Romans themselves don't start writing their histories until about this time period. 
because they're trying to make themselves distinctive from the Greeks. And you see this over and over and over again, how they identify themselves, either against the Greeks or against the barbarians or against the Carthaginians or what have you. And I think we do a lot of that now in our own society that how do you identify us versus them? So you always have these barriers and, and those sorts of definitions. How often, even in modern society, do the goalposts move? The Romans are this way. So the Romans might absorb a particular culture into their own and say, yes, you're one of ours now. New culture comes along. No, 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 you're different. A generation or two later, that culture has been absorbed and they're looking at the next people. No, 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 you're different. And it just, it just rolls along that way with each successive conquest and what have you. But the Romans are always looking for the good old days. How do you know who's a good Roman? They existed in the past. <laughs> of course, and you say all those role models from the Republic mm -hmm. that were later triumphed, you know, as these people exactly. from the past to live up to. This is the absorbing of ideas as they meet them over time, you know, a bit of resistance. And in the countryside, there's normally a bit more resistance than there is in the cities. Is that normally the case? No, it's the other way around. Oh. <laughs> Where you see the most Romanization or the quickest Romanization is going to be in the West because this is rural countryside. There's no urbanization when the army shows up in whatever flashpoint or whatever frontier they're put on. Of course, they set up their fortresses. Little towns build up around them. The locals start trading with them. And, and you end up with something that might have started as a fortress then becoming a municipium, which is an incorporated city, to moving on to becoming a colonia, which ends up with a Roman governor, for example. A good example of that is a kingdom. It's just outside of Budapest, which is sometimes called the Pompeii of uh, Central Europe. That started out as just a military fort because it's in the old Roman province of Pannonia, so back and beyond, but it ended up becoming a capital city. So it ended up becoming the capital city of that province and moved from a military fort to a slightly larger city to becoming this capital of, of a province. So it's a very important city. Yeah, the Romans could be quite brutal when they moved into town and they'd flatten you out. It wasn't a question of, oh, hello, would you like to become Roman? You get a free kitten every time you join up with us. But many of the locals are going to acquiesce because even if the Roman, after the Romans roll them over, there's benefits. You end up joining the Roman military and that military machine protects you. You might be paying taxes to the Romans, but income is also now coming into your area. As an ambitious local, if you learn Latin, the Romans might leave you in charge of that area and you can rise up through the civic ranks, maybe even move to Rome eventually. So it becomes very appealing to people in the West who haven't had a civic infrastructure before. So flat pack Romes, you know, sort of these little Romes built from, from the ground up, tend to pop up in the Western provinces. Let's call North Africa, Western province, Spain, Gaul. In the East, it's a completely different kettle of fish in the Greek world. When the Romans were first getting their government in order, when they were first getting their house in order in the 5th century BC and the 4th century BC, Athens was having its golden age. Alexander comes and goes while the Romans are still, you know, beating the tar out of each other on the peninsula. The Eastern and Near Eastern civilizations and city-states weren't really that interested in the West except as a place for raw goods, raw materials. There's some colonization uh, by the Greeks in, in southern Italy. They're up uh, what's modern-day Marseille, and that there, there's, there's colonization there, but not wholesale emigration. So as, as far as they're concerned, there's just these barbarians out in the West. They're not paying any attention to them. So when the Romans turn around and end up fighting these wars back in Macedonia, fighting these wars in Greece, they're conquering territories that are very, very old, have their own baggage, have their own past history. They're very happy that the Romans have come in to solve their problems. 
but they're not ready to acquiesce to the Roman way of life. So they just go about their business. The Romans have a heck of a time with the Greeks and, and people out in the East. Because again, these are much older civilizations and they see the Romans as mercenaries who've come in, they've sorted out the area, they've brought peace to the area, um, now they can leave. But the Romans don't see it that way. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss So with this idea, say that then like a Roman soldier, he's been sent out to Italy to either be a garrison soldier, let's say, mm-hmm. in Macedonia or Greece or mm-hmm. Thrace, or even somewhere else, like maybe on the frontier of Interlanda or, mm-hmm. or Britain. To write, let's say, write a story around that, to mm-hmm. learn more about those kind of figures in the empire. Mm-hmm. First of all, what kind of sources would you use to be able to understand what it was like for someone on the yeah, to be out on the frontier in this place, you know, much older than Rome mm-hmm. was? Um, secondly... Would there have been for those types of figures, going out to those far-flung places, mm-hmm. would there have been like integration, as it were, with the mm-hmm. local cultures there? Let's look at the West, because where you're seeing Roman garrisons being established are going to be on the German Limes, so on the Rhine and the Danube, um, or up here in Britain eventually, not so much out in the East. The sources that you would use, for example, with Roman Britain, what's life like on the garrison? Well, you've got, you've got a cornucopia of sources with the Vindolanda tablets, so initially, they might just look like, oh, these are just dull lists. These are shopping lists. Or the famous one with Sulpicia, isn't it? Who's got the birthday invitation? You can use Tacitus's Agricola, because that's about his father-in-law and his command throughout moving up into uh, what's now Scotland. So building, it's a line of fortresses and fortlets called the Gask Ridge, which my students have never heard of. They get really excited when they hear about it. So you've got the Agricola description, you've got the Vindolanda tablets, you've got a number of inscriptions, tomb inscriptions that you can use as well that are quite famous. I was using for my particular story, even doing walkthroughs, uh, what you get in the Museum of London, for example, because of course that's focusing on London, but that's still Roman Britain. The British Museum has an entire gallery that's just Roman Britain, so you can walk through and see everyday objects. You can do it virtually because many of these objects are now online. The sources are piecemeal. So you end up not so much saying, I'm going to find out exactly what it was like living on the frontiers. You end up reconstructing it. And if you're not fortunate enough to live in Britain or if that's too far away, like I said, a number of these places are now online. So when I was a student, there was no internet. We just used quill and pen and, and that sort of thing. But you can access places online such as Fishbourne Palace, for example, which is quite near to where I live down south. 
and see these reconstructions that have been made. As I was saying earlier with the Vindolanda tablets, for example, initially they might look a bit dull. And you start thinking, oh, God, it's so boring. It's so much bureaucracy. Oh, it's lists of what they bought, and it's people writing home asking for, oh, can you send me more socks and underwear because it's really cold up here. And then you have to stop and think, hang on a minute. Are we supposed to be in the middle of nowhere on the farthest frontiers of the empire? And it is so bureaucratic. Look at all these inventories. Look at all these letters. And this is the stuff they binned. And you start thinking, well, there must have been more communication than I thought. Hopefully, once you start delving into the sources like that, that can spark your imagination. So instead of just thinking, what a boring list of foodstuffs, we'll start looking at some of the foodstuffs on that list, thinking, this isn't native to Britain. This sounds like they've got a regular commerce, a regular trade. That might take you into looking at sources on commercial transport and how did these goods get up there? That can become part of your story. Where did some of these goods come from? I've got a colleague who's done this where he's traced a particular item from its original source, say in India, and how that raw material becomes made into a little statue, gets traded through the Red Sea ports and makes its way all the way to Rome and then maybe up to the far provinces. So what I'm hoping with something like the little book is if I point you in the direction of a source or you think, yeah, this, that's what I want to write about is Roman Britain, that hopefully you think more about peripheral issues in, in that respect. So again, going back to like some of these food lists on the Vindolanda tablets, you start seeing patterns and you think, is this for a ritual? You know, so what religion's being practiced up here? And I know about some Roman rituals, it doesn't include this. In answer to your question, are you seeing a merging of cultures? Yes, quite a bit. You see it, for example, in Bath here, the baths themselves are dedicated to Minerva Sulis. That's a combination of a Roman and local god right there. As people trace through their sources, and I do try to give a number of resources in the book to start with, start thinking about how you might reconstruct how the sources even came to be or how the items and the sources came to be there. And suddenly you realize that you're not just in the middle of nowhere, but it's a very active trading post. So it's, it's not meant to be Fort Wilderness. It was a checkpoint for the Romans. So they're trading with the locals. They're trying to keep track of who's crossing this border. And unlike the Greeks, the Romans do mingle with the locals. So there's a lot of give and take that's going on. Appearance was an instant indicator of status, position, and wealth in the Roman world. Clothing signified how one had moved up in the world and broadcast this news publicly, as seen on the tombs of freedmen and freed women, wearing attire that reflected their wealth, surrounded by illustrations of objects that indicated the means of their material well-being. How you dress your characters might be folded into how strangers and outsiders were identified and consequently treated by the locals. It can make quite a difference to the storyline if a stranger shows up in the big city or in a backcountry village on his or her travels. The thing that I try to emphasize in the book itself is if you only have one particular source, and unfortunately Roman sources are thin on the ground, you, you can't create a paradigm. If you find there's only two surviving sources about estates, the actual running of states uh, day to day, in the empire, one's at one end of the empire, one's at the other end of the empire, they're about 300 years apart. You can't use that as a paradigm, but it's a good starting place. I think that's what I'm trying to guide people to. I'm not trying to say, oh no, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't have your characters say this or that, because that's inaccurate, and that's historically inaccurate. 
knock yourself out, have a good time. And is that something that you really need to know if you're talking about ancient Rome or the mm -hmm. fictional Rome? is the global nature of it. I mean, it's going to depend on your social status, obviously. There's, again, when we were just talking about Hollywood, how you think everybody's eating peacock's tongues and, and that sort of thing. When the Roman writers mention all the sensational stuff and all the decadence, that's because they're saying, oh my God, just look at how decadent he was and he's not conservative the way we were. So you have to be careful of that. Where the ordinary Romans are going to see the extent of the empire and the might of the empire, that might be at something such as games where you've, let's say, you've got an emperor who wants to show off the might of Rome. So you bring in animals from all over the Roman world. It's very expensive to show something like that, but you, it's meant to be a wowzer. You know, so these ordinary people are seeing this sort of thing happen. Obviously, you might not be able to do that, say, up in Britain or somewhere out in Spain, but you can bring in those sort of, of magnificent objects and creatures as far flung as you can that shows how wealthy you are and that you're giving back to your particular city-state. The global nature is something I think that needs to be stressed. I try to stress it in class. For example, the Romans do allow local language, local taxes, local administration, as long as everybody ultimately pays the Roman taxes and their obligation to Rome. If you were a Roman citizen and you had to go to trial in your province, yes, you could go to trial with your local authorities, but as a citizen, you had the right to be tried in Rome. So you've, you've got these sort of privileges. Also. The Romans allowed local coinage, but Roman coinage was universally accepted. So you could be in Britain, you could be in North Africa, you could be in Egypt. If all this pocket money that you had were bona fide Roman coins, they could be spent anywhere. So it's very similar to what we have with the euro in that you've got this, this universal currency. So local currency is accepted locally, but then you can charge it to Visa, basically, if you've got your, if you've got your Roman money. So it, it is global. The whole idea of, I don't want to say global, but cosmopolitan nature of the empire comes with emperors such as Trajan and Hadrian, for example. These guys are provincials or their provincial stock. They see Rome as the center of this, this multifaceted provincial empire. And they want all the provinces, they want to know everything there is to know about the provinces. Hadrian himself built a, an estate just outside of Rome in Tivoli. If you look at it, it looks like an architectural nightmare because it's got all these things from all over the empire. But his plan was to show, here's this little microcosm, the entire empire is right here in my state. So again, you've got that whole idea of sort of globalization. I think, and I'm just as guilty as this, we, we all are because we're very short of time as instructors, it's a shame that you've got Rome, the empire, as a global entity. And all the other empires, all the other civilizations around them tend to be neglected when we teach our students. They also tend to be neglected in the fiction. We hear about them as enemies, the Parthian Empire, over and over again. You know, there's, always, there's always some dopey emperor who thinks he's going to be the new Alexander the Great and he's going to go after Parthia or whatever. When I bring up places to my students, I was talking about, in one of my classes, the Queen of Sheba. Well, what's Sheba? What, what's that all about? When I was telling them about Trajan's conquests, where he takes Cestaphon, where he moves into Mesopotamia, Dura Europa, and you say to them, these are thriving civilizations that were happening, the Chinese civilization that's happening at the same time. Marcus Aurelius sent ambassadors out to him. So in the Chinese record, they write about, it's either Marcus Aurelius or Antoninus Pius, scholars aren't quite sure which one they mean. It's a shame that Rome tends to exist in a vacuum, and I think a lot of that is simply because how we're pressed for time in the semester, how much we can teach. I'm hoping that Somebody who, who might decide, yeah, I want to create a Roman story. Maybe they might want to focus on what kind of relationship do the Romans have with these outsiders, that all of these thriving cultures. Do we only talk about them because we're here in the West and 
were inheritors of this empire. I guess one final topic I really want to talk about was women. I think it's fair to say quite a lot of the sources that do survive, the literature sources, mm -hmm. uh, especially uh, ordinary women, are quite looked over. But well, they're not there. Well, they're, they're not there at yeah. all. But when you look at stuff like a Pompeii, and, and I think you mentioned in your book how dedications, most of them are made by free men or women mm -hmm. to cities. Is archaeology then a key source of information if you wanted to talk about either a noble woman mm -hmm. or a plebeian woman in, mm -hmm. let's say, ancient Rome or anywhere in the empire? I think it's very important to pay attention to multidisciplinary methods to, to discover your people. Um, it's really only been in, in the past generation or so that you see a lot of cooperation amongst historians, art historians, historians, archaeologists. When I was a student, I was an undergraduate in the 80s, there was still almost a separation between people who were studying the literature and people who were studying the history and, and that. But it's, it's very vibrant now. There's a very robust scholarship in especially women's history and, and sexual roles and gender studies. We need the archaeology. We need the art. Let's take, for example, someone like Agrippina the Younger. I've written about her a lot. She's a showstopper when I do history talks. If you only read Tacitus and Suetonius, Agrippina comes across as the ultimate stage mother, that she's very pushy, that she killed Claudius so that her son Nero could become emperor. She's just absolutely terrible. What a horrible harridan. And then you go and you look at the material sources that survive from the exact same time period, and she's shown as being a helpmeet. Claudius puts her on his coins. Nero puts her on his coins. There are many statues that are made of her. And most significantly, there's a temple that was dedicated to the Julio-Claudians out in the east. So these are outsiders. These aren't Romans who are making a temple to the Julio-Claudians, and they're showing Agrippina as this great mother to Rome, that she has given this son and this era of peace to Rome. And you think, well, that kind of contradicts the written record. And I think there's where you get intriguing stories as well. So historians are reevaluating women such as Agrippina, women such as Livia. I mean, if I mention the Empress Livia to you, probably the first thing that pops in your head is I, Claudius, and, and the wonderful Sean Phillips just sort of sitting around, ooh, how can I take care of this person today? That's the image that she has from certain writers who want to criticize her son Tiberius. But then when you start delving in between the lines, and there's been a number of reevaluations of Livia, and you realize she was very important to Augustus as the mother of the nation, as, as mater familias for the city-state of Rome. You see reevaluations, like I said, of, of Agrippina, my gal, because mm, the writers might have said, oh, she's not an ideal Roman mother. But she is. She's raising a son for the Roman state. She's being very aggressive to make sure that he gets what is his birthright. A lot of the things that she does, if she was a man, she would have been admired for. So in stepping back and being able to look at the archaeological record and stepping back and considering that your written record is aimed at a very particular audience and using very particular vocabulary, you might start thinking, well, maybe she couldn't be sweet and cuddly, not how she was growing up, and, and maybe this is how she has to get ahead to survive. This is what Anthony Barrett, who's her most recent biographer, has concluded about her, that you can't have her be an absolute villain, but you can't have the pendulum swing the other way and say, oh, she's just misunderstood. She'd take your head off. So absolutely, I'm hoping that in some of the suggestions that I even make in the book is to look at coins, is, is to look at material sources, to try to get a well-rounded picture of what you might want to study, what you might want to write about. Gary Fliner, Hello. once again, the book is called A Writer's Guide to Ancient Rome. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Gary, thank you very much thank for coming you. on the show. Thank you. Historical Fiction. <laughs>